Hi guys, I am so excited for my next guest. It is funny man, Steve Mallory. He started his career here at the Groundlings in Los Angeles where he met Melissa McCarthy, then went on to write and direct her film, The Boss, and now has a new series coming out on Netflix called God's Favorite Idiot with Melissa McCarthy. Did I say Melissa McCarthy? I think I did. Check it out. You'll love it. Thank you so much, Steve Mallory, for joining my show. Hello, Joe Katz, and thank you for having me. Oh, my God. I love it. I um, I know you are a busy, busy person, and I know you're leaving to go out of town, so I caught you before you're going to Australia. I literally didn't have a hairdryer this morning because it's in the luggage. I'm leaving in like oh, wow. two days, and my whole family is moving to Australia for eight months. Holy moly. That's not going to stay with the step family for a couple days. That's That's a big move. That's a big move. And you're keeping your house here. Everything stays here. Yeah, everything stays here. Uh, yeah, I, because I think I'm coming back. Maybe you come back. <laughs> In theory, I, I keep on saying, listen, every this this where I live now, this lovely country of mine is a little bit on probation. Like I was on all the time in every school I was ever in. It's like yeah. until you're until you start behaving yourself, you don't get, you know, uh, all per, uh, all your permissions do stuff. So I'm I'm going to Australia at the same time. I'm turning around to the country I'm not. Like you listen, you're on probation. You guys got oh, to yeah, you're up. putting, Yeah, you're putting the United States on a yeah. timeout. Yeah, they're on a timeout. Do not move your nose out of that corner, young country. <laughs> or I will not come back. Yeah, or, or maybe I will. I will. Well, and then if I come back, you're not going to like it because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pointing my finger a lot. Right, right. Wow. Well, Steve, that's exciting. So you're going to be gone. Um, we're going to get into all of it, but you're doing a show out there, right? I am. That's amazing. A Netflix series with, uh, with, Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone, two of my regular partners. Amazing. That's yeah, amazing. Exciting. Oh, I, I, well, we'll get into that because I want to talk about that. But I want people to really know more about Steve Mallory because, like, I feel like you're the brains behind everything. You're the brains behind comedy and great films. and <sighs> That's what I try to tell everybody. Yes. Yes. We uh, always say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you say no, it shuts it all down. You know, we, I learned that from Holly. You know, she taught me no closes the scene. Agree and amplify. That's my whole job. I'm going to say, uh, actually, we concluded a movie uh, in December of last year in Atlanta. And Melissa and Ben gave me this wonderful gift of a sign that said, uh, you'll think of something. And it's like this beautiful kind of embroidered thing. You'll think of something because that is, I think my role on, on many of our projects and just in general is that my job is to think of something. I think, think of the, the funny line or a way to do something or a way to address things. That's kind of what I do. And I, I like that job. I like the, That's got, a good the role job. of I'll think of something. Yeah, that's intense. I mean, I just the thought of that. I'm always like, oh, my God, will I? But it's like you just believe it and it and it will be, you know. It's really true. It's it's really true. And I think as a lot of the the creative hyphenates like you are, the second that you allow yourself to creatively address any of the problems or obstacles in front of you, the second that you allow yourself to, it's amazing how quickly they come to you. Like it mm -hmm. may not be the perfect solution, but you'll find something. You will find something. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Let's get started because I want people to know who Steve Mallory is. So how did it all start? You grew up where? Uh, I grew up in Washington State, okay. um, and uh, I, you know, everyone loves to say Seattle because it's a cosmopolitan city and it's a one of my favorite cities in the world. 
but I am a Washingtonian, meaning okay. that I grew up in outside Seattle, was born uh, in, in the Puget Sound area, but went to school for a brief bit in Washington State, which is on Pullman, which is in the east part, eastern part. Met my wife in the city of Wenatchee, Washington, which is dead center, the apple capital of the world and the buckle of the power belt of the great northwest, <laughs> as it says below the, That's the masthead of the Wenatchee world. Um, so I'm, 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 a, I'm a, you know how you, people say I'm a man of the world. I'm a man yeah. of Washington. That's Wonderful. where I started. Yeah. And so then you went to college. Did you, did you go through four years of school or no? No, 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 I, no God, no. Uh, I barely graduated high school. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> I only, I only went to college because I got married incredibly young and also, uh, young viewers, and I know you have so many young viewers, don't get married young. It's stupid. No. I don't know how it worked out. Uh-huh. Uh, know the person for a while. Like, we met and moved in together the same day. Again, that's another podcast. We'll do that one later on. And, and but, can I ask, how old were you when you got married? 22. Oh, wow, that is young. Yeah. Although, years ago, it wasn't so young, but nowadays, people wait. But that's good. That's great. And somehow, and still, still married, which is lovely. Uh, yeah. But she had to finish college. And one of the stipulations of marrying me was that I had to go to college with her. And I wasn't just going to sit in a college town and not go to college. So I went to college, did, uh, I don't know, a year. And then she graduated. And I'm like, good. She goes, do you want to get your degree or something? I'm like, no, no, I'm good. No, we're out of here. Yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) Let's get out of here. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. That's great. So how did you get started in the business, like in entertainment? Because I know like you did a bunch of other things. A bunch of other things. Yeah. Because now you've done so many great films and we'll get, because I want to talk about all the films that you've done. I just like people to understand how did you get started and how Steve Mallory got involved in all of this comedy stuff. Well, you know, all the while I was, I was... What, you know, this kind of peripatetic lifestyle, this nomadic wandering thing that I was kind of in my youth. And I did, I had a bunch of jobs. I was, you know, I, I did like a, a couple weeks of lumberjacking in the Cascade Mountains. I was a country music DJ in Wenatchee, Washington. 98 wow. FM, Kissing Country is the country king of the Chelan Valley. Bring you all the hot country hits of 1992. Another Next Garth, up is Willie Nelson singing. A, a Garth Brooks rock block on 98 FM, Kissing Country, the whole bit. Wow. Uh, wrote for like, like small town newspapers. Like I was always moving around, trying different things. But I think the one line through it was that there was a, uh, there was an element of storytelling to it that my, I always wanted to have inputs of different types to allow me to kind of tell a, my, my friends say like you mythologized your life you kind of wanted to have these ups and downs and arcs to kind of contextualize what you do and how you approach work and it all kind of came to a head when my wife and I moved to Southern California which as a kid I'd actually gone to high school in Irvine California so in Orange mm. County oh. and uh, when we landed I said listen I want to go to the Groundlings I really want to go to the Groundlings, the the Groundlings Theater, which mm-hmm. I never brought up to her. My poor wife, who's I've been married to for like three years, she's like, "What are you talking about? What are the Groundlings? You want to be an actor?" And I'm like, "I want to go try it. I want to go see." And that's where it all started. Like going going into the Groundlings was this thing of like, "Oh, this is all the pieces of everything you've kind of wanted in one place," and it became it became the focus for everything for. Oh, geez, I'm going to say 10 years. 
Wow. How did you know about that? You just had heard about the groundlings when you were in Washington. Uh, here's here, You want to hear the great story? I'm going to yeah. unfold one of these great stories. I, I'm okay. bragging. I'll take it. Uh, in 93, 94, mm-hmm. uh, I was driving in Seattle to my waiting job. Also, I waited tables in like 30 different restaurants. So wow. we can talk about that. Like waiter, actor, model type. You know? Yes. Um, the <laughs> All wands. that stuff. You got to make it. Uh, yes. And I heard about the new cast of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And it featured Will Ferrell. Okay. And I mentioned that I'd gone to high school in Orange County. I went to high school with Will. Oh, you did? Yeah, all four years. You and, knew him? Oh, yeah. We did, like, sketches and morning announcements on the thing. I knew him well. And this is how long ago this was. I wrote him a letter. I sent him a letter to Saturday Night Live, and I'm like, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. This is amazing. I can't believe it. And then he wrote me a letter back. Because he wrote this, a letter the, back. There was no, that's how you did it. In the old days, yes. email was called letters. I know. Oh, oh, it was a, it wasn't an email or it was an email. No, it was a letter. It was a paper letter. Paper there was letter. no email. Okay. Email didn't wow. exist. I'm that's old. amazing. We're both. No, old. I am too, honey. I mean, uh, yeah, I had carrier pigeons in my times. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using semaphore and kabuki to yeah. send messages across. <laughs> right. So, so you sent him a letter. He so, sent you a letter he back. He sent a letter back. And one of the things he said in the letter was, uh, yeah, I went to the groundlings and it was the best experience. And he said, you really should have gone to the groundlings because we had the same temperament of wanting to kind of be funny and, and right. be creative. And off that letter, I kind of used that. It just stuck in the back of my oh. head. And I'm like, I did, you know what? You're right. I should go try this. And it was, it was the, you know, a real foundational thing for me because it was the first time I went, there's a place to put stories and ideas and your cleverness and those kinds of things to use. And it was wonderful, just wonderful. And if people don't know The Groundlings, The Groundlings is a theater here in Los Angeles. Primarily, it's comedy and improv, but it's a lot of sketch and in um, characters. It right? is, yes. Yeah. It, te- it teaches you the fundamentals. It's been around now, oh boy, like 50 years. Right. Um, it's been around for a while. And many of the people that you know and like in comedy, including like Melissa McCarthy or Kristen Wiig or Will Ferrell or uh, Pee Wee Herman, you know, all these people, yeah. That's that was where they all started. Right. And... And I even taught there for a heartbeat. And one of the first things you tell people is like, we can't make you funny, but if you naturally have some comedy in you, we can show you a way to use it and how to right. kind of put the engine into it, into the transmission, you know, that sort of thing. And so then you started doing it and you got in. I did. Yeah. And started doing uh, improv. You start with improvisational, you know, yes. Right. And, and all those sorts yes. of things. And then moved into creating characters and writing sketches like they do on Saturday Night Live, writing kind of Mm -hmm. three to six minute pieces with other people on stage and crafting little scenes. And, uh, and it was so informative and it feel, it felt like kind of the culmination of so many things that I'd done where, listen, I had been writing and I had, listen, on 98 FM, you kind of have to have a character. Like I was, I really liked doing like sustained character pieces. So kind of combining those things together and more than anything, it kind of gave me permission and the confidence to do it. You know, by doing it and seeing you have some modicum of success, it propelled me forward. Uh, and then I kind of committed to it. I, I started, you know, auditioning for commercials and everything, like every young actor uh, in Hollywood and trying to do several things and 
you know, cheap movies and bad TV shows. There's some bad TV shows on my IMDb. Don't look. You've done there it. Are. Yeah. I've done yeah. it. Uh, yeah. And that was it. And I may, and literally all of the friends that I have to this day are people that I met there. Those are wow. my, some of my closest friends in the world. And so then you ended up going, getting on the Sunday company, mm -hmm. right? There's like a Sunday company and then there's a main stage and you started doing all of that. And yeah, and you, wow. I, I was in the Sunday company for a year and a half, which wow. is a very long time to be doing That's a, a show long every week. Yeah. And uh, I had got on a TV show and I was doing other work and I was having to take time away from the Sunday company, which you really can't do until finally I did something that most people don't do. I had to leave. I like to say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't come back and keep doing this. I, I have to go. And so I, I asked to leave. I quit so that I could do other work. Wow. Sometimes I'm like, I should have stayed. And they, because you from the Sunday company, you kind of matriculate up to the main company. But at, some, at one point, someone said, like, you do, you have all the tools in place by the time you're doing a show like that every week. Oh, yeah. Writing new sketches. You're writing hundreds and hundreds of pages of sketches worth a month. And um, you, 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 I had all the tools that I really needed. So I was, in, in hindsight, well, it was disappointing at the time, in hindsight, I'm like, I, it turned out fine. And so then that is where you met Melissa and Ben, right? Yes, yes. Ben and Melissa uh, were also in the Growlings. They were both in the main company. So they were like uh -huh. the, the seniors, the cool kids in the school, smoking in the right. corner. And you're looking nice. at them like, oh, look how awesome they are. Uh, and here's the secret about all theater schools, every theater school in the world. I'm going to say over 50% could be up to 70% of people go into theater so that they can hook up with other people. I mean, it's just an easiest, you don't really go into trig, advanced trig to hook up with somebody in theater, no, right? In theater class, you're like, you know what? There's a chance I can hook up with somebody in this class. And everyone's kind of open and emotional and, and connected. And it's so much easier to date. And what happened was when I, we met, when my wife and I met Ben and Melissa, no one else was a couple. Everyone else was there essentially to hook up. Not, oh. And not the only reason. Oh, I thought you one. meant hook up like business-wise. You mean no. hook up like oh, date-wise. I mean hook oh. up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you already sure. were hooked up. I you was hooked Mel up. Yeah. And Ben and Melissa would hook up. So after a show, we'd all be sitting in the lobby, and you just kind of see all the other actors pairing off to go off and get drinks. And here are the two semi-middle-aged couples, like, going, do you guys want to go and get a steak or something? Like, go have a <laughs> glass of wine? And so, honestly, I think a lot of the reason why we became such good friends is because they were a couple, and we were a couple, and we were kind of, like, past the trying-to-find-a-date right. version of, of life. And wow. then, then we just shared, they're just absolutely our best friends. If they weren't, we certainly wouldn't be flying across the globe and resettling in a foreign country. I mean, they are wow. the loveliest people. And it was right away when we started actually working and collaborating, you know, we, we made so many small projects. This is at the birth of YouTube, again, as old as time, as old as <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, uh, we would we would start making small videos and small pieces of material and putting it up and trying to make pieces. And we actually even made like a, a short film, geez, 15, 18 years ago, like that we all wrote, we all directed and we all acted in. It was going to be like a two weekend project and ended up being like a seven month project, like every short oh, film. Wow. But that was honestly what I said earlier about giving yourself permission and kind of doing a like allows you to be, I guess. That's what did it. Like, we all went, hey, 
I bet you we could make real movies. We made a 20 minute movie. It's not terrible. I mean, it's terrible, but it's not terrible, you know? <laughs> wow. And that's how it kind of started. And then how did your life evolve from that? Did you then, you, you went on to do the Groundlings, but then you, your life evolved. You had a kid, right? Yes. And, uh, when I had a kid, you, you know, there, there is this, this, kind of entertainment, creative lifestyle that you're in before you have kids sometimes, I think. And uh, some people can manage to do it when they have kids. But when I had a kid, I was like, boy, this kind of swinging at a decent paycheck every four months and trying to make enough money to get your guild, your SAG insurance and those sorts of things, just it just didn't feel practical to me. And so when we had a kid, I left Hollywood. I left. I, I did. I stopped doing it. Uh, so and, like with yeah. Melissa and all that, you're like, I'm going to go take a job somewhere. Yes. Yes. And wow. they were so supportive. Like, go do it. We understand it. You know, Melissa was still, this was when she was just starting to do stuff. Like it was right around bridesmaids time. So she was just oh. kind of building up her resume too. Yeah. And while I'm working and I, t- I took a job as a public relations executive with a big public relations firm. And... I honestly thought that I would be there a couple of years, maybe a couple of years, a year, maybe two most. But I ended up almost 10 years, nine and a half years or so. But all the while that I was there doing my my nice executive job and, you know, filling out timesheets and all those sorts of things, (laughs) uh, every once in a while, like she would say, hey, do you want to come and do a line in uh, Identity Thief? Do you want to come and do it? I'm like, yes. And so there's a small scene at the very beginning of me in Identity Thief, just an opening piece. Or, uh, you know, I would go write an episode of some friends of mine were producing like an animated series. I'd like write an episode. So I would I was using all my vacation time to go back to work, which my wife said, you're the dumbest person in the world. Why? (laughs) And I'm like, because it's what I love to do. I I just I loved it. Yeah. And, you know, and listen, I, I really enjoyed having my job, like having a real job made me feel like an adult and allowed my wife to stay home with our kid and all these wonderful things. But I definitely missed that very immediate, you know, static electricity, crackly lightning creative that you get from being in that. And so I would take every opportunity to write something. And Melissa talked to me when I actually, when I first started, she goes, Hey, do you want to try writing a script around a character I had at the groundlings? I'm like, yes. And we throw out a bunch of ideas and we, you know, did a treatment and she pitched it around and then we wrote it some more and wrote it some more and then it just kind of died. But then as her career started growing, people would say, hey, do you have something you'd like to make? And her first idea was, I would love to make The Boss featuring Michelle Darnell, this thing that we had written. Oh, and, she did Michelle Darnell at the Groundlings. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was it was, that was one of her characters. It was one of the best characters. So funny. And I, I love what we did in the film, but there's something so immediate because she was working with audience members, pulling people out of the audience and trying to teach them how to become rich and powerful like her. Yes. Yes. It's so funny. It's like, it's like that multi-level marketing, like Mary Kay or, you know, any of those, those, oh, so that, so that's how it happened. So they said, do you want to do a film? And she said, I want to do this Michelle Darnell. And we, uh, you know, I was taking my weekends and all my vacation time and we were writing and writing and writing with Ben also. And we wrote the movie and I'm like, well, this is just a fun exercise. You know, the process of getting a movie made is so difficult and so tedious. And 
somehow, miraculously, Universal went, yes, let's let's make Michelle Darnell. <laughs> let's make the boss. And when that happened, I was, because I wrote it, I got to be a producer. And also I was learning how to do this kind of punch-up writing on set. So I had to be on set every single day. And we're kind of, we'd shoot a scene and then we'd rewrite and add jokes and add humor and add comedy as we were doing it. And I asked for a leave of absence from my big corporate job so I could go do this. They went, oh, that's exciting. Yes, you should go do that. That's a, you know, by this point I was the the, uh, director of ideation for the company. I was Mm. teaching people how to come up with ideas, fun, made up title completely. I love that ideation ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And so they said, this is what we would expect, I think, from somebody with this title that you made up. So I went and made a movie for three months in Atlanta and in Chicago. But also it allowed me to go into, you know, our clients, internal and external clients, and talk about the process of coming up with ideas and developing ideas and becoming more robust with ideas, those sorts of things, by using a lot of the structures and ideas and tools that I learned from the groundlings. Right, right. You know, these ideas of it, of agreeing and expanding on something right. and allowing the first idea out to be crafted and molded and, and uh, you know, giving everybody, making it as collaborative possible in ideas and stop trying to make ideas a one-man band, which a lot of people like to do. Right. And then you took three months off to do the boss. So I took... Th- I took three months off to go shoot this. They let me go, uh, which was so lovely of this uh, company. And I made, we made the boss and it was the time of my life. I mean, it was fantastic. It really was everything that I ever wanted to do. Being around all these craftspeople and all these artists, you know, all working together to make one single great thing. And it is a tremendous undertaking to make a movie and every piece of it I loved. It was so enjoyable. Wow. and then I went back to my job. I literally <laughs> wrapped being on a movie and having someone bring me coffee twice a day, which is like the greatest perk. So yes. I was like, you want a coffee? And I'm like, yes, I don't have to go get it. <laughs> yes, I love it. Yeah. And then back to my to my office and writing briefs and doing scopes of work and things like that, which was so bizarre, but also allowed me to kind of go, wait a second. I think I probably just want to make movies if possible, which is, I can't, I, I, I can't even... I can't even describe how uh, how preposterous it sounds to be able to say that and how privileged I am to be able to do it. But it really was the thing that I wanted to do after I did my first and one. And then what happened after the first one? Well, after that, Ben, ben wrote a movie called Life of the Party. Yeah. And they started moving along, getting that produced. I'm like, oh, that'll be great. They'll get to be able to do this. And Ben and Melissa said, hey, do you want to come and be an associate producer on this movie? We're going to shoot in Atlanta like we did the last one and you can come and do what you did, like add jokes and write and help keep the script together and uh, find new ways to, to coordinate the the actual storytelling of it. And I agreed. And I went back to my boss at my job and said, Hey, can I get three more months off? And they're like, you should probably just go. <laughs> it seems, it seems like that's probably what you should be doing or want to do. And I'm like, it's not untrue. They go, listen, if it if it all falls apart, you can come back and try this again. I'm oh, like, okay, great. That was and so that, nice. that was enough of Yeah. It was it was lovely. It really was. And I mean, it was an abundance, an abundance of caretaking on their part to say, listen, you're doing something incredibly scary going out on your own like this. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're what you're doing actually can benefit both of us if that 
turns out. And I haven't had to, I haven't had to go back. Amazing. I haven't had to go back. I, I keep doing. So associate produced, I think that was my title, associate produce, some sort of producer, uh, life of the party. And then out of that, I think Melissa was going to work on Ghostbusters. And I went and just did punch up writing on Ghostbusters, working with them there and where we shot in Boston. And then it just either I would write a piece for our little collaborative, or I would participate somehow if I could to help them out. And uh, it's been it's been a really fun last couple, I don't know, five years, six wow. years, however long we've been doing it. It's yeah. been magnificent. And just so people know, when you say punch up writing, tell tell give me an example of like a, a punch up writing. So, me- and this is this is ridiculous. It, okay. it seems like so contrary to how you would think a com. And it's I think it is specifically for comedies. Right. But what happens is a scene is written on the script that performers will perform the script as written. Right. And then as they're doing it, myself and sometimes often we'll have a couple of other writers with us on little sticky notes, we will write alternate jokes, punchlines, setups, maybe even versions of the scene. Like, could we try it from her perspective or from a different perspective or something like that? And Every time the director yells cut, Ben usually will walk over with this long kind of train of sticky notes. And like, here's 10 other jokes that they could say instead of this or to just kind of add on to this to Uh, make it to make something funny. Right. Um, And the idea is the idea isn't for that moment, but it does help that moment because it makes everything feel very organic and fresh when there's new scenes coming. And they do this in sitcoms where new lines will come in and it will kind of invigorate the people in the scene, but also invigorate the audience because it's something unexpected. And when the audience gets involved, then the scene kind of picks up some energy. So we do this for every scene of the movie, but then when you're in the edit and you're editing the movie, and you're kind of seeing the ebb and flow and the energy of the movie, there's always an option to kind of go, maybe we should try this joke. Maybe there's one extra little piece. We should just let them say this just to see if it changes it or connects it somehow else. And it it gives you a little bit of, of wiggle room in the edit to create comedy or even to sometimes drop comedy if the scene is doesn't require it, or you've already had a couple laughs, or you need people to finish laughing. That's a big thing. Uh, Sometimes you'll write a joke too close to the last joke, and they don't even hear the second joke because there's too much laughing. So then you have all those options in the editing to go, use that first joke, and now use the fourth joke we did, or something like that. Exactly right. Got it. Interesting. Wow. And so it's it's very helpful in in that space. And it can be transformative. You can change an entire scene. A movie that we just finished in December, uh, it'll call, it's called Thunder Force, and okay. it will be out on Netflix, I believe, on Memorial Day. Oh, okay. Uh, which is exciting. Superhero uh, movie with Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer. Oh, they play really, this. It's really Oh, fun. they play and the superheroes. Okay. They play superheroes. And did you, you, you wrote and were there punching up? Correct. Yeah, I was, I think. I, I never know my title. I think I was an executive producer, but uh-huh. doing the same sort of work, yeah. doing the same the same sort of work where you're creatively trying to amplify all the scenes. And and in this one, also like there was a couple moments where I got to, I think through writing something 
And because also I'm so close with Melissa and, and Ben now, we have a bit of a shorthand where you could actually change the the pace of a scene. Like we had a scene that had a lot of CGI that was going to be participating, right. you know, that was helping. And it was like, boy, this is going to be a heavy lift. It's an expensive CGI piece. I'm like, you know, there's a little comedy performance thing you could do here that might eliminate 70% of it. And I wrote out a quick little snippet and I'm like, tr- could we try this? Could we just try this little comedy thing where it's more about a performance and less about the, you know, the expensive CGI of it. And it turned out really funny. Wow. I, I, it's a, it's a piece. I, I'm patting myself on the back. It's so <laughs> funny, but it was my, you know, sitting there and writing the comedy, but then also trying to look at the bigger picture of this is going Jeez. to cost a lot. That money could go someplace else. Potentially right. those sorts of things are what I get to do now solving little micro problems and, uh, trying to amplify a story. Uh, and it goes back to the growlings, you know, agreeing to what's happening and then amplifying what's happening as much as you can. Right, right. But, you know, I'm just thinking when you were talking about it, a lot of people get stuck, Steve, where they get in that corporate job like you got. It's very comfortable. We go, oh, wow, you know, we get our benefits. We get all these types of things. How do you, you know, a lot of people I feel like are you that are like, I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to be a director. How, what advice would you give somebody to go, I want to break away from my corporate job. I've been there for 10 years or 15 years. How do I get out? I don't know a lot of people. Uh, the, the velvet handcuffs. <laughs> that you is. Know? Yeah. They're so, they're so comfortable. It's yeah. just wonderful, beautiful. They, you know, they go with everything. <laughs> um, I'll tell you the secret to me has always been, and I think this is, if you are a creative, if you want to be in a creative space, uh-huh. you have to make things. You have to make things. Right. And not, not just, oh, I'm, I'm taking a stab at it. You have to beginning, middle, and end whatever you're doing. If, you're, if you have a desire to be a creative, you have to create. And so all the time I was working a job, every moment I got, I would pull out video cameras and stuff and make a little short video that just amused my friends. Uh Or I would work on a script every night. You know, it was, I would come home, spend time with my family, and right after dinner, go sit on my patio and just type something that that worked. And at at no point, all the way, all the time that I was working in in my my big boy job, I was not writing a script of some sort. Just, Just plunking away with no with no ambitions of ever even doing it that I kind of had mentally said, I'm tabling that part of my life, but I enjoyed it. And frankly, there's a freedom to it. Yeah. You have a job, you have a job, right? If, and if you want to be a creative and you want to create, just do it for the love of doing it. Just do it because you love the act, the process, and maybe somebody will get, will enjoy it, reading it or seeing your little video or whatever you're doing. And so it becomes almost a purer version of creative mm-hmm. because you're not looking for an outcome. You're looking for the thing itself. You're in the the process of doing right. it. And it was, it was okay. I mean, it, it, listen, it's a lot of energy, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to keep constantly generate, sure. but you know, it's like anything, you know, it's like uh, working out, I guess. Yeah. And keeping that know. muscle going. Yeah, exactly. 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 And surrounding yourself with other people, too, is the mm. other big part of it. You know, I was surrounded by other creatives who were still working in that space that I like so much. And being in a community, I can't stress that enough, being in a community of creatives, mm-hmm. find that group, find your little your little 
clan of creatives is so helpful because it encourages you and it normalizes the creative process. It kind of gives you permission to keep doing it regardless of what you're actually doing. You don't feel so you know, alone, be, right? It, it, exactly. And there's no, every version of it's okay. You know, you could be during the day, uh, you know, waiting tables and, and, you know, selling $50 martinis someplace, but it doesn't diminish the fact that you're still a creative, that you're still an actor, a writer, whatever it is you're doing, you can still be those things, you know? Hey, hey there. there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. There's so many comedies out there now and there's so much competition. What do you think makes yours funny and successful. And I know it's like, sometimes it's an innate talent, but it's like the boss did so amazing in the box office, like $79 million, didn't it? Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did okay with them. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. The, I, I think the thing that I, I, my signature, is that what we're saying? Yeah. What's my vision? Yeah. Oh, or like what, gross, what makes yours, guy, but. you know, cause there's so many comedies and some are like, you know, mm. I, I have to say that my, the thing that I really, really like in a comedy that's important to me is a very human element. I really like there to be uh, the idea that people are essentially there. There's a good, there's goodness in people and there's a fairness and that people are always striving to be uh, the best version of themselves. Mm. And that that's the process. Even in, in super intelligence, it was, you know, we, we said in a line, you know, that people are good and people are worth saving. That might be, you know, the, the underscore of all everything I write, that it is about people kind of finding their innate goodness and doing the making hard choices to do the right thing. Uh, and that's not a comedy thing. That is a storytelling thing. And it's a storytelling thing that I, I like because I believe it. So if there's one thing that I do differently, I think is not differently, but I lean into, I lean into the most human version of a story, the thing that allows people's humanity to shine, uh, and then try to make a bunch of jokes around it. I always say, listen, if, if someone said, could you, could you do, could you make a comedy out of, Kramer versus Kramer, right. you know, a very serious, <laughs> right. dramatic divorce, right. you know, that scarred every divorced yes. kid in the right. world in the 70s. It's such a good story that it's like, could I make that a comedy? Yeah. You can make it. Yes, fun. because the story is in place. Oh, I see. Could I make it a lot funnier? Yes. But the poignancy and the power of it is still there. Uh. Uh, so it's create a really compelling story and then find the comedy. In Superintelligence... I literally took the idea of like a Terminator movie and flipped it like the first moments of when 
a artificial intelligence taking over the world, instead of them immediately launching all the missiles, might they try to understand humanity a little bit more? And then was able to tell a story that we'd seen before, you know, of uh, of a computer taking over the world, but make it funny, but also connect it to human, the uh, you know, the great human drama. Because like in that it's super intelligence, Melissa was just like a woman, your everyday woman that- The most average woman yes, in the world. the most average woman. Right. The most average woman in and the world. And she got involved in this whole yeah. thing. And it's like, I think maybe that's why, that's that's interesting how, how you connect the two and yeah, and make it uh, relatable and then funny. Uh, that, that's, uh, th I think that's what I, I do the most. I'm, I'm writing several scripts right now, and it is the thing that I look at the most. I really want to s see people, normal people, not comedic characters, uh, because I'll say this. Melissa, I think, is so good at doing comedy because everybody that sees a character she does goes, I know somebody like that. Yeah. I, I feel the authenticity, the genuine kernel of the character in the middle of it. And even though there might be a wig or, you know, a, a, a high neck turtleneck that she always wears <laughs> in the boss, right. it's like, no, no, she's essentially my Aunt Debbie. You know, people go, they, they see the genuine, authentic person within the character. And I kind of want to do the same thing in scripts. I want people to go, that's a version of me. That's my life. Right. That is something I've gone through, something I can identify with. And then allow the comedy to kind of guide you through and, and lift the, the energy of the, of those scenes so that it's not just a kid in the middle of a terrible divorce, like in Kramer versus right. Kramer, there's, you know, kind of this, this blithe and fun energy around. Where do you get your ideas? Like if you're thinking of a new movie for Melissa or you're thinking of something that you're trying to create, where do you come up? Uh, you know, you, I, I think it is less about coming up with them but being opportunistic when an idea does come. Uh, I think everybody probably has at least one good idea. Yeah. I know this because I don't think I have a relative who hasn't emailed me their idea for the movie. <laughs> right, you right. Know, this is the movie. They, they do it. Yeah. And God bless yeah. them because it's, it's there. But when the idea comes, it's your job to go, okay, idea, I'm going to write you down in my notes app. Right just to have the idea, just the square and write it out as much as, and spend a couple minutes with the idea so that it's there. Like the, I think we all have ideas coming at us all the time. It's just being opportunistic with them. Like, okay, if the universe is shoving this little kernel in, then jump on it, jump on it and put it down and let it foment and right. let it kind of breathe and, and see what comes of it. So I think it's less about, about coming up with them and just taking advantage of them when they come. And not trying to force it, not sitting Right. There. Will you look at a person like a Michelle Darnell or, or, or a character and go, ooh, this would be funny to do a, about an older woman that lives in Texas or a woman that wears high turtlenecks or, you know, something. Do you do, you do it around a character or is it more around the story? Uh, I, I, I have to say I'm probably more story driven. Okay. I am. I'm more story driven. And then I will then spend time on a character because the, the story is, is the platform, right. you know, it is, it is kind of like what we're going to build on, you know, uh, beginnings of scene, middle and end and, you know, uh, high tension scenes and right. uh, self-reveal scenes, finding the character, finding a character within it that makes all of those things feel more powerful, feel more interesting. And then I've had the tremendous luxury of being able to write for one of the best actors yeah. alive yeah. right now. And 
being able to talk with her, and I'm like, what? This, I'm thinking a character like this would really be able to participate in this in this movie, and she can find different levels and stuff like that too, which is, yeah. I mean, that's that's a gift upon oh, yeah. itself. And not that I've only written for her; I've written for for other people. And it's the same idea: is you know, create a character that would def- definitively be in that place that has a really distinct point of view, and then mold it. Mold it when you find the actress. I got to work with uh, Caitlin Olson. Caitlin Olson, who's, you know, going to spend 18 years on Sunny in Philadelphia, which oh, is yeah. just insanity wow. now. But she did a, I did a show for Quibi. Oh, yeah. Quibi, if people remember, yes. earlier this year, was an actual streaming Yeah, platform. the renovation or, show. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, flipped. Yeah. And it was the same idea that my writing partner and I had to write a character that was really distinct and really specific. And then once you give it to a talented actress like Caitlin, it becomes more than what you anticipated. But also you've written it to allow her to kind of find the the beats and, uh, you know, go bigger or smaller right, as she wants right. to. What, would, what is like a funny story that e- either personally or professionally that happened on set or with Melissa? It always seems like it would be funny. And I know there's a lot of work that goes in. It's not all just funny. But I just was curious, like, was there a funny moment that stood out to you that was like, oh, my God? Listen, there's very few unfunny right. moments. You know, when, when you are working, there's, there's, it, you can, Melissa loves doing what she yeah. does and she, she loves her husband and working with her husband and those two create such great energy and then being able to be uh, a fifth wheel or a third wheel, a part of yeah. that is, is the best. And, you know, our, <laughs> there's, there's so many things, a, a lot of the stuff that, that, I love is when she, Melissa loves to bite off more than she can chew a lot of time for a scene. Sometimes it involves a stunt. Sometimes it involves a really complicated wordy scene and she is fighting to do it as well as she can. And seeing her in the scene struggle, I, I one of the first things that popped in my head was a, the, the one scene I did with her during um, uh, Identity Thief, there was a stunt and the stunt was she was going to jump up on a chandelier and swing and then crash through a table. And she was going to do it herself, not a stunt person. And and I, yes. And I'm like, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. She's like, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm like, don't do this. Don't do this. Like just begging her, like, please reconsider. I don't want you to do this. She goes, there's pads. It's great. I'm going to have the stunt woman do it first so I can see it. And we sat there and they ran the rehearsal with the stunt woman we're watching. And the stunt woman falls, doesn't doesn't manage to do the stunt. She's fine, but she lands kind of hard. And Melissa looks at me, she's like, I'm like, I, she's like, maybe there's another way to do this. I'm like, exactly right, exactly right, exactly right. Wow, yeah. But it's it's her terrific ambition to want to try something more, to go bigger, uh, and she beats herself up like she we in in super intelligence. There was a point where she was going to think she was doing carpool karaoke and she started singing a song and she goes, I don't know if I if I like that song. I don't know if I like that song. She goes, what's a what's a funny karaoke song? And I'm like, one week by the bare naked ladies, oh. which is the uh Chicken to China, the Chinese chicken. You have a drumstick and your brain starts ticking. <laughs> but it's this really, really fast kind of 
rootsy, rappy thing in the middle of this song. Yeah. And she goes, oh, that's it. And the second she started, I'm like, this is going to take forever. But she got so committed to getting the words right then and, and she there. she got it. To, and she got it. She got it. But her being so flustered and, and working towards it, you can't help but it's like, just find an easier song that you right, know. Right. But she, she won't. She wanted to do it. And yeah. that there's something just, you're, you're just, I, I, I'm so filled with pride, but it's also hilarious to watch her just work and work and work and, and work to it. do it. It's yeah. fantastic. Being that this is a, uh, we talk about fashion, what's your sense of style, Steve? I know we chatted something and I know you love those sweaters that you have. You have very, you, you love, I literally am wearing. You love your merino I, wool listen, sweaters. Wool is a, is a miracle. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I there think there's a movie That's there. My <laughs> there's, yeah, it's a miracle fabric, yes. guys. It, it breathes, it stays clean, it's antimicrobial naturally. Mm. I just I just love wool. I uh, darn tough merino wool socks oh. from a company in Vermont. The the wool sock, very thin, you know, it's yeah, a mix of yeah. fabrics. Okay, but what's my style? Now we're getting to stuff I'm interested in. Yeah, what how would you describe your style? Uh, yeah. I'm going to say that first off, I I like really like style and clothing a mm -hmm. lot. And frankly, as a chubby middle-aged guy, it's, I shouldn't because there isn't, it's very difficult to craft a look for a, a, a thick centered fellow like mm -hmm. myself who has disproportionately short legs. I'm six foot tall oh. and my inseam's like 28 oh. inches. Interesting. I'm like a bumblebee that shouldn't be able to fly, <laughs> like its wings shouldn't be able to support itself. I shouldn't be able to propel myself. Everything works fine, and though. Okay. Everything, it works. But I, if I had my druthers, I would love to be like an elegant suit guy. I actually really miss suits. I miss suits so much during this pandemic. Yeah. I, there's no opportunity to kind of put on a, a, a lovely three-piece suit with a, you know, a really wonderful contrasting colored tie. Oh, yeah. That That's my dream. Oh. I wish... I wish I could be. Do we? Do you know the director Paul Feig from from Bridesmaids? He directed Ghostbusters. Oh, right, right, right. His suits. Oh my God! But he's also this tall, thin, elegant. I mean, he's a dandy, yeah. and he would say he's a yeah. dandy. And I'm jealous of that. Of course, we're all jealous of what right. we're not, you know. But he has he has these beautiful, you know, tapered leg suits and gorgeous shoes, and uh, he, he literally carries a walking cane often. Uh, wow. I, and that kind of elegant, kind of bespoke English yeah. influence style is is wonderful. Um, I love that. I cannot pull that off. Also, what I know about myself is that I have kind of a boyish face, which is mm -hmm. great. And so if I was going to lean into anything, I would say I would lean into kind of the parochial kind of yuppie handbookish stuff, kind of an Oxfordy style. So I'll wear a lot of textured jackets. Like I'll do like a corduroy or a oh, houndstooth yeah. or something yeah. like that. If I'm going to dress up, um, I really do like wearing, if I'm wearing a uniform, this isn't far off from a uniform. I'll always wear a nice button down shirt, often in different colors. But if you're going to see my face, it's always a dark blue or a dark black because my eyes really pop. It, it you know, looks good. No, I know. Pop They're popping blue. now. People got to tune into YouTube to see it pop, but it's popping. You're going to see it. <laughs> You're, You're going to see, see it. it. Uh, yes. And so if I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'll try to accentuate what I've got, which is I've got pretty eyes, so I'm going to wear a darker blue. Um, I like to wear 
And this is for all, I'm going to put a call out to all guys that are heavier okay. set. Nah, just yeah. heavier set. Wear fitted clothes, yeah. guys. Yeah. You you have to wear things that are right. fitted. You, you, you can't have that blue sar of your shirt. You can't have a billowiness around the tops of your thighs with a pleated pant. Uh, even if it's not comfortable to you, wear, wear a fitted pant. Listen, there's stretch fabric now right. in men's pants that is magnificent. And it cleans up your lines and it makes you look taller. It makes you look thinner. Where I think guys that carry weight will wear clothes that billow trying to hide it and not understand that it's making themselves look boxier and bigger, which... They think it, it it hides things and it's like it actually kind of makes you look bigger, like you said, and it makes you... Yes. You need to keep it... It doesn't have to be a skinny jean, but it can be more of a fitted, yeah. That's a great advice. What else is my my thing? I love I love layering. Mm. I do. I really do like layering. I wearing a uh, a shirt, a sweater. Uh, I have I have a nice collection of like car coats mm. when it's cool. Mm-hmm. I feel jaunty, <laughs> kind of like something out of a Jake yes. catalog. Uh, and uh, you know, playing around with colors. I don't want to be too stodgy. I, I feel like the second you get you know into your fifties and sixties, men just kind of default to a set of colors, right, right. you know, they, they won't kind of explore it. So I, you know, I have, I have a pair of aubergine pants. Oh, I have, I'm actually wearing my aubergine pants oh. right now. I'm not going to show you, I'm not going to okay. stand up, but kind of like an eggplant. Yeah. I'm like, that's oh, fun. Yeah. And it's, it's colorful and playful. And especially as a creative, when I'll say this, when I was in the corporate world, I had a wonderful mentor and I was going to a meeting as like the creative director for a project. Uh-huh. And I was wearing a suit uh-huh. And I showed up and she goes, no, no, not that. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, take off the jacket, roll up your sleeves. You want to say you're a creative. Uh, You want to look like a creative. And she goes, you look like everybody else. And it was such good advice to dress for the expectation. Right. You know, that if you're going to be dressed, you want to dress to tell the story of what you want it to be, I, I say that it'll be lights up exposition. Mm. Making a thing. I mean, the second the lights come up, you want people to look at you and kind of go, I kind of know where the story is going. Oh, right. And you can use it both ways. Right. You can say, you can surprise them by dressing one way and acting another, or sometimes amplifying the message that you're saying by, by what you're wearing. Clothing is part of the storytelling process. Right. Personal storytelling sure. as well. Sure. You know? The, the one thing I remember from my one semester of communications classes at Washington State University is there's something called metacommunication. It is the communication that we're giving by with how we look, how we're responding, and those types of things. And clothing is part of the metacommunication. I'm telling you part of me by how I'm dressed or what I want you to believe about. And we, and we, once we see you, we have 30 seconds. We always say that about fashion, that we determine, I like her. I don't like him. I love that he's got that vibe or, you know, whatever it is. We read quickly. Exactly right. And and I, I, I rarely go off script. I rarely try to, you know, I, you, very rarely will you see me in kind of grays and blacks and moodiness because that's just not who mm-hmm. I am. Because then they would see me, it's like, why are you dressing like this when you can't stop talking and you're all, you know, effervescent, like I just generally am. Uh, so th- those are, those are like, I-, I put thought into, into dressing mm. up. I miss dressing up, yeah. Joe. Pandemic sucks. I know. Well, now you're going to be pandemic free. You're going to Australia. You don't have to wear masks. You don't have to do anything. It's amazing, right? Yeah, but but it's also going to be like 80% humidity, uh, humidity and 90 yeah. degrees. I'm going during summer. Uh, so now I'm in 
light linens. Oh, that's right. I'll be doing some like was kind of patterned oh, light lovely. linens, and I'll, I'll have some some nice shorts. Although here's my problem: I'm going to Byron Bay, Australia, which Ben and Melissa are already in, and they have informed me that very few people wear shoes. Oh, people are very barefoot. Really? It's that kind of place. Oh, I'm not a barefoot. Are you that. barefoot kind of person? No, no, me neither. God, no! I want shoes. How about flip flops? Barely. I don't either. Barely. You know I'm what? Not I, a big flip flop. I don't. I don't have the toe. Yeah, I'm not good with the flip flop. No. So you know, I'm bringing a, a selection of nice, like brand new white, uh, low cut sneakers. Mm, nice. Because I feel like I can pair that kind of a sockless right. white shoe right. with a linen yeah. short and a breezy yeah. shirt, that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll also feature a couple of Panama straw hats Ooh, that maybe I'm taking down. Lovely. Very cabana wear. I mean, but I can pull it off. I can pull it off. Well, uh, Steve, we have gone on and on, and I love talking to you. I could talk to you all day. You're such a great communicator and a great writer and um, funny. I have one last question for you that I always ask everybody. What have you not told anybody ever, even your wife, not even your wife, um, Mm. that could help somebody else? Yeah, I'm going to give you two. Okay. I'm going to give you two. Uh, I think the thing that holds so many people back when they want to do a creative endeavor is they become so concerned with how it will be perceived. We're so wrapped up with what people will think. What if somebody reads it and they don't like it? We want to we want to dwell upon the negative pieces of our creative process, and we're trying to prejudge it. And I did it forever. I did it forever. I, I wrote my first TV script while I was still in the Groundlings. And I literally, a friend of mine was on the TV show and they said, hey, if you ever written anything, let me see it. And I wrote it and I never, ever gave it to her because I was so fearful that she would judge it harshly and that would destroy me. And so my advice to somebody is have, not, not to have the courage, but don't put so much merit in how other people are going to perceive what Mm -hmm. you're making. Mm -hmm. Just make it and make it for you Mm -hmm. and love that you're doing it. Love the process and love yourself enough to, to let it go. Like know that it's, that your creative, your creative should be the only reason that you have the idea or the creativity to do it is because it's meant to exist. Know Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And don't allow yourself to block yourself. Mm. And I feel like that is something that so many people do. Mm-hmm. They have such wonderful ideas. They're like, I don't want, I don't want you to read it. I don't want to show it to mm-hmm. anybody because it it feels like a small death. And I'm like, that's the secret. The secret is to get past that moment and to find a way to wrap your arms around whatever you make and love it for what it is and not worry about the merits mm. like it, for other people. Because we always we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be we, people. Exactly. Yeah, we don't want people to judge us. Yeah. And creativity feels so personal and I understand it, but you really do. That I think is, that's the barrier for so many people. And my, if I could, if I could literally grant people the ability to just move past that, those feelings, that would be the blessing everybody deserves, you know? And we all feel that way. We all feel yeah, that way. Absolutely. Uh, what my, uh, my second one mm-hmm. would be the secret would be uh, shapewear for men. <laughs> you can't underestimate shapewear for men. My really? God. Uh, men stay away from it, and you shouldn't. Man, you want a, you want a clean, flat shirt? Shapewear. <gasps> do you right? wear it? All the time. You do? Oh, my God, yes. It, you know, the, the first time I was on set and I had to wear something, one of the, one of the dressers was like, hey, I got you a piece of shapewear. And just was very kind of like, 
And I'm like, great, I'll put it on. You know, Spanx for men. Yeah. Spanx yeah. for men. Oh, everything lays so clean. All your shirts lay so flat. And every layer that you put on just lays flat. It makes you look, it also sits you up a little bit straighter. Right, because right. Because there's a little pull. Right. And so your posture is better. You move a little bit more elegantly. Oh. All your clothes lay better. It's even if it's just 5% better, you feel. Right. 20% better in your head. Wow. Shapewear for men. If you're going out on a first date, if you're going for a job interview, if you're going to a red carpet event, wear shapewear. Unless unless you're built like Brad Pitt or something <laughs> like that. Then, <laughs> then you don't need to. Can you, yeah, that's interesting. And you'll wear it when you, you when you go uh, to dinner with someone or if you're going to, is it only if you're going to do it uh, like in a show and you're going to be in a movie, you wear it? No, no. If, if there's going to be a thing where I'm out and about. Yeah. You know, and and I and you know, we I think everybody wants to a, a time or two like feel feel specially good that evening. Right. I want to look right. more attractive. I want to feel more presentable. It's like it's not the cologne. It's none of that. It's shapewear. Uh, shapewear <laughs> will give you everything you're looking for. That's the new go-to for men. Shapewear is the it. New go-to. That's an amazing. Shapewear gift. is it. If 2021 has taught us anything, we all need shapewear, especially after eating all of our uh, sourdough breads of 2020. I love it. That's amazing, Steve. You've been fabulous. Thank you so much for joining my show. Thank you, Joe. And good luck in Australia. And I can't wait to see the things coming out, the film that's coming out, and then the Australia. Thing. Yeah, Super Intelligence. You can watch now on HBO Max. Uh, yep. Download that. We'll have Thunder Force out Memorial Day and. Uh, I tell you to go watch the Quibi show, but you just right. Can't. It's gone. Yeah, but I watched Super Intelligence. It was so funny on HBO. I love that. Um, so I'm excited to see the one with Octavia Spencer and Melissa McCarthy coming up. And You'll love yeah, it. and it's then a lot of fun. I'm excited to see the show you're going to do on Netflix, which will probably come out in a year or so, right? Yeah, at least we'll see. Well, all this is so new and interesting with this new world. So we'll get it done as quick as awesome. we can. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. See you later. Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Cat's Walk. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producer Gerardo Orlando, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Dave Douglas. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.